0: From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Jen White is host of 1A, a daily program aired on KLCC, originating in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming on the Oregon Grapevine. It's my pleasure. How did you find your way to a radio career?
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. That story starts when I was a little girl. My dad had a collection of cassette tapes that were um, recordings of old radio shows, things like The Lone Ranger and when I was a kid, I would, I would sit in our living room and, and pop one of those cassettes into the tape deck and listen to them for hours. And I was just fascinated by the power of the human voice. And, you know, these are shows that had Foley artists. So there was this whole theater of the mind experience I was having while I listened to those tapes. And so I fell in love with audio when I was really young. And then when I was about 16 years old, my my older sister, Dana, and I were driving, she was an engineer and... She said to me, oh, there's this show I want you to listen to. It's these two guys. They talk about cars and car repair, and it's hilarious. And she introduced me to Car Talk, and that was my, my gateway program to public radio. So I started listening when I was a teenager and just fell in love with, with public radio and what it represented and um, kind of made my way into public radio as a career after college.
0: Car Talk, but what, what a great way to enter. <laughs> I'm with you all the way. <laughs> you have been doing radio and listening to public radio for a long time, and I wonder how you see it changing. There's conversation, of course, about radio dying, and then it keeps coming back, and it never seems to really die. So what do you see as changes, either positive and or negative, in the industry and in the world of audio?
1: You know, it's interesting. I remember when um, satellite radio first launched in vehicles, and there was so much concern about, oh, this is going to kill public radio. It, it's the end end of radio as we know it. And of course, that that didn't happen. You know, I think on the on the plus side, there was a lot of concern about podcast and podcasting and digital media, and I, I think it has forced us to think more expansively about where we meet listeners. So people may not be listening in in a vehicle. I think the pandemic sort of sh- reshaped the conversation around how people access what we do. And so we've, we've been pushed to be more creative about how we offer what we do, whether it's through a website or it's through a podcast or other on-demand options, in addition to the broadcast radio that we do and people still access in, in droves. But you know, trying to think more creatively about about it and and get ahead of the technology rather than just responding to the technology as it emerges. So that's that's a a challenge, but I think it's also a positive in the way it's reshaping the work we do. Now, on the negative side, one of the things I, I think about a lot is the introduction of AI and how Difficult it is becoming to discern truth from fiction. The technology is moving so much faster than the technology to actually detect it. And as newsrooms, as, as radio shows, when all people are hearing is sound, the human voice, and now that can be duplicated, what does that mean for the work we do and, and the trust people have in the work we do, um you know someone can replicate my voice very easily, or your voice, Barbara, very easily, or the voice of a of a politician and an elected official and we We have to figure out how to address that issue, how to have tools that can help us as newsrooms detect what 's truth in fiction, but also explain to our audiences the tools they can access to be um astute news consumers and, and media consumers. And I think that's a challenge we haven't quite gotten an answer to yet, but I know lots of people are working on an answer.
0: What about the line that is between basically news and commentary and information and what is what and how you decide as a listener and as a person where they differ and where they're the same?
1: I think there's this broader conversation we need to have about media literacy because you know, so often I'll see someone angrily post something about, oh, the media isn't covering this story. And they will provide a link to um, uh, an article from their local newspaper or a piece from their local public radio station. And what they really mean is cable news isn't covering this story, right? But it all gets lumped under this umbrella of media. Similarly, commentary versus reporting those things have become conflated in ways that i think are are unhelpful and also damaging when you think about the the opinion pages in newspapers when people are looking at an opinion piece and thinking it's reporting then there's been a breakdown somewhere and how we're helping people understand this sometimes convoluted world of media can be very confusing. It can be difficult to discern what's what. But I think as media organizations, it's our job to, part of our jobs, to help inform people about what, what it really means to be media literate. So that they, it doesn't mean that they will agree with everything we do and agree with every editorial decision we make, but they can understand why we made those editorial decisions. It's about transparency and sort of pulling the curtain back and helping people understand how this work gets done and where some of those lines you described, where they fall um, within a media organization. And I think that that's something we can do. Um, It it takes time. It takes effort. It takes um, (laughs) planning in what are sometimes very chaotic news cycles. But I think it's, it's work worth doing.
0: There is obviously a huge divide politically in the world, and and I'll talk to people who listen to only certain media, NPR, or others, or they only listen to Fox, or they only do these things, and there's not much communication between the sides in, in in the Capitol and also in people's living rooms. And I wonder how you can get people on different sides to listen to you and not just preach to the choir. How do we cross that line? How do you do that?
1: You know, it's interesting. We we have a, a pretty diverse body of listeners for 1A. And we have for Republicans, we have Democrats, we have people who swing more left, more right. Our audience also skews slightly younger than the typical NPR audience. And it's more diverse. And I think it in part it's because we try to really reflect the conversations. Americans are having. So we're not doing a, a lot of reporting that's rooted in the beltway. You know, it's like, oh, this congressman said this and this congressman said that. That's a piece of what we do. What we're really more interested in hearing is what's happening in your community. What's happening in your state legislature? What's happening on your school board? Um what's happening around this infrastructure project and what does that infrastructure project mean for your neighborhoods? And so by rooting it in the lived experience of Americans, I think it just broadens the conversation in a way that more people feel like oh you're you're talking to and about me. This is about my life. this isn't about what people you know sitting on Capitol Hill are doing. This is about what's happening around the corner from me or in my backyard and so I think it just broadens broadens the 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 conversation in a way that people feel like they can have a seat at the table. And I also think the structure of 1A specifically around audience engagement in that we welcome it and we integrate it into the show in a way that's very organic and it happens, you know, before we air, it happens during the live broadcast people feel like they have a voice in the program and, and not they don't feel like they're being pushed to the margins of what we do. It's like, no, you are the core of what we do. And so we need your voice. We need your questions. We need your perspectives because that's going to allow us to have these uh, cross-generational, uh, cross-political uh, boundaries, um, cross-cultural conversations that we need to have as a country. And I think the show is really carved out a space to be a place for that. So because everyone's welcome to the table, people listen and people engage with the program. Um, that That's how we've been able to do it. Other shows have different formats, but I think the strength of our format is that it it really does center on having listeners be a part of what we do. And they welcome that. They look for a space where they can actually have their voices heard. And that's what's been working for us. To pull back the curtain just a
0: little bit, you have, you cover all kinds of things, cooking, world events, arts, music. It, it is a really broad-based and interesting show. How
1: How do those ideas come forth? What do you do? How How does it work? Yeah, we have a wonderful group of producers Um our pitch sessions are are lively <laughs> and and um, sometimes contentious, um, but everybody brings their ideas to the table. And it's rare that you will get a an outright no. Sometimes it's, okay, that pitch hasn't been fleshed out quite enough. You don't have those core questions you need to answer. You don't have the right people or you don't know who you need exactly. But Everybody brings their experience perspectives, what they're reading in the news, um, maybe a story that's happening in their community. They bring it all to the table and we've got a diverse group of producers who are across the country and and some even working in in other countries and having that diversity really helps us provide a rich selection of topics for the audience. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is is our listeners. Again, they drive the content. And so you know, sometimes we'll do an hour, and over the course of that hour, we'll see that there are two or three questions that we're getting over and over and over again from listeners. It's like, okay, wait, there's something there's something here there's this, there's a story here that we can follow up on sometimes we'll call one of those listeners back and say hey you asked about this thing tell us tell us more about why this is a question for you and that becomes a show that becomes a show so listeners pitch us ideas and sometimes we take those ideas and turn them into a show so we're we're really pulling not just from our team but from the people who listen and engage with the program as well and that that's what accounts for the variety of topics you hear on the program.
0: What media do you use personally to give you information and joy?
1: Information and joy. So I, I'm a news reader, of course, and and listener, um, of course. I listen to public radio, and I tend to listen to not just um, national NPR, but also local stations. And so that might be, you know, my home state of Michigan um or I lived in Chicago before we came to DC. Uh we have several partner stations across the country, um uh, like in Louisville and Fresno. So kind of tapping into these local stations because they do a good job of keeping a pulse on the communities they're covering. And then all of the major newspapers, pretty much anything you you would expect <laughs> me to read I'm, I'm probably reading it. But when it comes to joy, what I what I turn to for joy um, I do a combination of pleasure reading when I have time, which tends to be either something science fiction or fantasy related. Uh, I love reading cookbooks, even though I, I tend to cook more intuitively. I just love learning about other cuisines. And so you might find me with my nose buried in a cookbook. And then when I listen to audio, I t- find myself turning to the types of podcasts that. I would have listened to when I was a little girl. So um, LeVar Burton, for instance, has a podcast where he, he tells us stories. And I love that podcast. It's a great way for me to just take the dog out for a walk sometimes and you know, listen to something that's just, just for joy, just for entertainment. Uh, Snap Judgment is another one of my favorite podcasts. So things that really take me back into the storytelling part of audio that I fell in love with when I was a little girl.
0: And do you have kind of suggestions for people who are out there feeling like there's a morass of information and getting lost, and how to ways to sift through it and have it make sense? In terms, of, in terms of news content specifically? Just in terms of anybody sitting out there and they're lost in their computer and once again they can't, you know, they're kind of, what do they call it, doom scrolling, I think. Mm. And, and there they are and no, maybe there's time to kind of turn to something else, but there's so many options and so much going on. I think it's really, it's hard to find insight and I thought maybe you have a, I'm just throwing out there that maybe you have a suggestion for how to deal with it. Maybe you well, do. I would
1: say listen, listen to 1A. That's a good start. <laughs> the thing that I always suggest to people is to start start local. Start local. When when the world starts to feel very overwhelming and you feel like, oh, there's too much happening and and there's nothing I can do about it, or I just don't understand. I think we're we we may spend sometimes too much time looking at everything rather than looking at the things that are happening right around us, things that we probably can have a direct impact on and and in fairly short order. so are you looking to your local newspaper? Are you looking to your local public radio station? Are you finding perhaps community newspapers that have come up because people wanted to find uh, uh, an entrepreneurial approach to news. Are you looking at at college and university newspapers? There are some student newspapers that are doing incredible work on college campuses, covering all kinds of things and things that may very well have an impact on you. Your tax dollars are going to these institutions, for instance. So that's what I try to encourage people to do is just maybe for a second, turn off the social media Take a step back from that and let your brain rest. I've been accused of doom scrolling on more than one occasion myself. And just look at what's happening right around you. What's happening in your local school board race? What's happening in your state legislature? One of the great concerns I have is around the the contraction of coverage of state legislatures. There was a time when almost every newsroom, you, you would expect them to have somebody who was at the Capitol covering what was happening in in those state legislatures where decisions are being made that are going to affect you immediately in some cases. Um, and so as that information has, has started to dissipate, because newsrooms, you know, may not be able to fund a full-time reporter, what does that mean? So where can you go for that information? Who are you, who are you following who covers your local city council? You know, is there someone at your local newspaper, who's paying attention to what happens in those city council meetings, because that matters to you. So I would just say to maybe rather than thinking about a specific outlet, think about geography. Think about the amount of of information you are taking in and, and what you can do something about. Usually that's going to be something that's more locally focused. So how much attention are you paying to that? That would be my suggestion. Is
0: there a story or stories or perhaps an interview that you have been involved with in your career that has really changed your daily perspective? You go back to it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I would think back to when I was in Michigan, and it was during the Flint water crisis. Um, This is went through a, a series of decisions by the state. The city of Flint switched its source of water from the Detroit River to the Flint River, and the Flint River was... Highly polluted by industrial runoff, and through a series of decisions, it, it ended up that this water was so corrosive that it was breaking down the the pipes and leaching lead into the water. And this water was being consumed, um, cooked with people were bathing in it, children, and it turned into a huge crisis for the city. and And I remember. As the severity of the issue began to emerge, we were, we were talking a lot about those decisions that were being made at the state level, what led to it, and that was all really, really important work. But I wanted to understand what it was like to turn on your tap and not trust the water that was coming out. What was it like to try to figure out, okay, I've got a family of four, and we need to be able to drink water, I need to be able to cook, we need to be able to bathe. Um, How do you function on a day-to-day basis as a parent? And so I sat down with three mothers in Flint, and we had, had a long conversation. And it reminded me, and continues to remind me, of the impact of Of policy. You know, we can talk about policy in the abstract, but there were a series of policy decisions that led to this crisis that affected the health of thousands of people in Flint, and again, children with lead poisoning. And there's a problem when we talk about policy just through a political lens. Or we talk about it just abstractly as this thing that's happening without that deeper understanding of what it means for people. And that conversation lives with me because anytime we're thinking about how to approach a policy discussion, two things need to happen. We need to understand, like I said, what it means for people, but we also need to have the people it will affect at the table as part of that conversation. We have a central tenet of the show, nothing about us without us. So if we're talking about a community, that community needs to be present in the conversation. That's a, an interview that I, I continue to live with and that I think back on often um, because it was just a, a powerful reminder of what we can do as media organizations in bringing some of these voices into conversations where they may be overlooked or ignored, and we carry that, that idea through on 1A. What is
0: your inspiration and what gets, gives you the drive to do the work you do?
1: Hmm. You know, anytime people talk about inspiration or ask me about inspiration, I automatically think about my parents. Um, My dad and mom were both born in the late 1930s or my mom in the early 1940s. Um, My dad in Georgia and my mom in Mississippi. And they were both born into an apartheid system. Uh, They were both born under Jim Crow. And when I think about their experiences as young people and what they were able to accomplish in terms of securing a future for their children. Doing this work is a way of honoring them every single day. You know, my parents broke so many cycles in in their family's histories and... Some of it was the result of luck. Um, some of it was the result of significant policy changes that gave them access to spaces they didn't have access to before as black people in this country. Some of it was just hard work. But I don't know that I would be able to do the work I do without their guidance and their support and their belief in me and their belief that things should be better for their children than they were for them so that's my hope every day when I go on the air is that I'm honoring them and I'm honoring the people who came before them <laughs> you know it's 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 interesting my my dad had polio as a child and When he was finally released from the hospital, he was not able to walk to the only school available to him. And so my grandmother packed up the family and moved them to Detroit so he could attend a school for kids with physical disabilities. And you're talking about a major cross-country move, but that move ensured my father got an education and he was trained as a draftsman when he was in high school, but the drafting um, departments at the automotive companies weren't open to black workers until after the Civil Rights Act passed. And then they were forced to open their doors. And my dad was one of the first black drafters hired at GM. And so, you know, I think about the the things that had to come together, the specific policy changes, those individual decisions, the the hard work and dedication, all of these just in some ways miraculous things that had to come together for me to do what I do and have the life I have. And I don't think I can do anything less than my best work to honor to honor that. I, I feel very lucky to be in this space and to hold hold this role. And um yeah, thinking thinking about what they've done that's what inspires me more than anything else.
0: Jen White, thank you so much for being on the Oregon Grapevine. Do you have any any more thoughts you want to add to this conversation?
1: Yeah, I would just add that I hope you, as you listen to the program, that you will engage with us, that you'll send us your questions, that you will join the text club and um, really feel like Oregon is part of this conversation. We are dedicated to creating a space where the country talks to each other. Everyone in the country talks to each other. And so we need your voice. We need your voice to be part of the work we do. And I hope, I hope you'll, you'll join us.
0: Thank you so much. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.